The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a podcast about forensic pathology related topics. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are going into forensic pathology. So, welcome to our first uh, COVID edition of <laughs> Dead Men Do Tell Tales. We're sorry for the week delay. We had to figure out how to do this thing remotely. <laughs> It's been an interesting experience. <laughs> to say the least, we just spent 20 minutes figuring out how to do this via Zoom. So thank you, Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully this recording works out. And unlike our alcohol episodes that we had to record like three times in a row. If that happens, I might just die. <laughs> yeah. Not of COVID, but just of other things. <laughs> Speaking of COVID, we have not completely forgotten this. It as a topic for forensic pathology. We are planning on doing an episode about it, but we just wanted to finish up this series we had going first. Yes. So hopefully our next episode will be on COVID and maybe we'll have a little bit more insight since we'll be a little further into the pandemic. And we'll be mostly focusing on how it's impacting the medical legal community. Yes. We will probably touch on the rest of the world, but mainly we'll be talking about the forensic pathology side of things, which has been very interesting. So today, to finish up our everything trying to kill you, we figured we would finish it out just like Captain Planet and do an episode on heart and the ways that the heart tries to kill you. Which, if you hadn't gotten that by now, that was the order that we did this series in (laughs) Captain Planet. He's our hero. He's everybody's hero. (laughs) So, um, also of note, the heart that we're doing, we're focusing on innate things in the heart to try to kill you, not the ways that you can kind of mess up your body to make your heart try to kill you. So, we're talking about things that are pretty much things that are genetically acquired, leading to heart trying to kill you, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yes. So we're talking about these as innate things that the heart will do to kill you. And the way that kind of the overall way that the heart in the end kills you is with sudden cardiac death. So that's when the heart abruptly stops beating in an organized pattern. So blood is essentially no longer being pumped around the body in an organized method in order to get your tissues the oxygen that they need. So it's really hard to tease out the different causes of cardiovascular disease at an epidemiologic level. Overall, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death globally. So 17.9 million people died from cardiovascular disease in 2016, and that represented 31% of all global deaths. And the majority of those are due to diseases that have a behavioral component, which we will not be talking about today. So 85% of all cardiovascular disease deaths are due to heart attack or stroke, which we will not be talking about today because there's usually some sort of behavioral component to those, whether it's a lack of exercise or bad diet. And then 
when you include all of the deaths together, 25% of them fall within the category of sudden cardiac death. So death that occurs within one hour of the onset of symptoms and is due to that sudden cessation of the heart muscle, as Jordan mentioned. Um, most cardiovascular diseases can be prevented by addressing behavioral risk factors, so tobacco use, physical inactivity, alcohol use, and we're not talking about those ones today. We're talking about more things like inherited defects. So kind of the first group that we're going to talk about are things that are called structural heart disease. So this is something that affects the structure of the heart, whether it's something that was malformed in utero or a genetic defect that causes an overall change to the structure of the heart. And the first one of these are congenital cardiac anomalies. So this could be when some of the big vessels in the heart, like the aorta or the pulmonary arteries and veins, either come from or go to somewhere that they're not supposed to. This is something that when you're in utero and your blood supply has a few extra conduits that lets oxygenated blood flow in a different path. So because obviously your lungs are not oxygenating your blood when you are in utero, it, you're getting all of your oxygenated blood from the placenta. So the flow of blood has to be a little bit different in order for you to be able to oxygenate everything. Now, if you have one of these big vessels that are malformed when you're in utero, because of these bypasses, you can still oxygenate everything. But when you are born and these bypasses close off, all of a sudden your body can't get oxygen out the way that it needs to. So there are some pretty big defects and changes that happen that when a fetus it then becomes an infant, if some of these are deformed, all of a sudden you're not oxygenating well and you need to have surgery pretty quickly or keep those bypasses open for longer until you can have surgery. And these are kind of the first steps of a structural heart disease that can kill you once you come into the world. And uh, congenital heart defects are the most common type of defect that is present at birth. And they are also associated with a lot of genetic syndromes like trisomy 21, also known as Down syndrome. And congenital heart defects affect about 1% of births per year in the US. So that's 40,000 births um, roughly. And about 25% of babies with congenital heart um, disease have a critical form of it, which means that they generally need surgery or some other procedure within the first year of life in order to stay alive. One of the other big defects that you can have are when the vessels that feed the heart muscle aren't formed correctly. So obviously it's very important for the heart muscle to get appropriate amounts of oxygen. And there is a normal path that the vessels that feed the heart muscle, they're called coronary arteries, there's a path that the coronary arteries usually take. Now, there is a small percentage of people defined as less than 1% of the population that these coronary arteries arise in a different place than they're supposed to. Now, this could either be that it's arising from somewhere that doesn't get enough oxygen, so it's coming from the side of the heart that isn't oxygenated yet, or it could be that it's coursing in some weird direction so that blood flow gets cut off and then your heart muscle isn't getting the appropriate oxygen. Now this can either 
show signs at birth or it can, can start to show signs later on. So usually these are silent and it's just something that you can see at autopsy when somebody dies of some other cause. But they've shown that somewhere between 20 and 30% of sudden deaths in young athletes are actually due to these coronary arteries coursing in the wrong direction. And one way that it can happen that's kind of the most common are called myocardial bridges. And this is when the coronary arteries, instead of sitting on top of the heart muscle and coursing through the fat on the outside, actually cut right through the heart muscle itself. So you can imagine that if these arteries are getting compressed in systole, which is when your heart is pumping blood to the rest of the body, that they might not be able to provide enough oxygen to the heart muscle. Now, coronary blood flow actually happens in diastole, so it happens when the muscle is relaxing, but there is still a good chunk of these cases that can lead to sudden death and when the vessel is coursing through the muscle rather than sitting on top of the muscle. So the next entity we wanted to talk about is something called myocarditis, and this is inflammation, the itis, inflammation of the myocardium or the muscle of the heart. And there are various causes for myocarditis. It can be caused by an infection. It can be caused by allergens, drugs, autoimmune disease, or hypersensitivity reactions. Um, and Jordan's going to go into a bit more detail about autoimmune specifically, since that's something that's more of an internal versus an external component. But before that, I just wanted to say that this is a very difficult thing to diagnose at autopsy because grossly the heart can appear very normal. And then with histologic analysis, that's where you can see different findings that could point you in the right direction. Um, and, and histology usually, is the thing that we look at under the microscope. So that's turning into a slide and looking under the microscope. Yeah. And the primary cause of death in somebody who has myocarditis is uh, the inflammation produces electrical instability, which causes your heart to beat out, out of rhythm. So arrhythmia is the, the final cause of death in myocarditis. And I feel like for all of these, it always ends up in arrhythmia. And like when you look at sudden cardiac death, it always ends, or at least from what I saw, it's pretty much always going to be, you know, something weird is happening in the heart that leads to the electrical rhythm not happening in an organized way and leading to you not getting enough blood everywhere. Yeah, that seems pretty consistent with all of these. So as Nicole said, the myocarditis can be caused by a lot of things. The main things that we think about that, again, aren't internal, but are infections, you know, that could be a virus, bacteria, parasite, medications, different toxins can cause it, heavy metals. But of course, we're talking about what can the heart, what can happen to your body so the heart kills itself. And the main thing in here is what's called autoimmune myocarditis. So there's a lot of different causes of this, and I'll list them but they all have kind of a similar endpoint. So things like scleroderma, lupus, so um, systemic lupus erythematosus. But it's never sarcoid lupus. It's never lupus until it is lupus. <laughs> <laughs> Sarcoidosis. There's a lot of vasculitides. So your vasculature are all your blood vessels. So there's different inflammatory processes in which things start to attack your blood vessels. And they can also attack the blood vessels in your heart, which can lead to this. And then the other big one is Kawasaki's disease. And of course, there's a lot more that I haven't listed. So any autoimmune disease is when your body develops an antibody against itself. So 
autoimmune myocarditis is when your body develops an antibody against the heart muscle, the myocardium. And when this happens, essentially these antibody can stick to part of that heart muscle and then other white blood cells will identify those antibodies and try to kill those cells because it's identified as something that's foreign. So some of the white blood cells can be lymphocytes, macrophages, or eosinophils. And so once this heart muscle starts to die, you have decreased cardiac output, and then you can get something called fibrosis, which is where you start to have this is fibrous stuff laid down over these dead cells. And this can lead to messed up electrical circuits going on and lead to your heart no longer being able to pump appropriately. And I saw that in young adults, up to 20% of deaths are caused by myocarditis. Again, in young adults, but surprising amount. And that's all caused myocarditis, not just autoimmune. Autoimmune is probably significantly less, but myocarditis in general is definitely a pretty big one. 20% of all deaths in young adults or in sudden, sudden cardiac deaths? Death. Sudden cardiac oh, deaths okay. in young adults. Okay. Yeah. Huh. 20% is a lot. 20% is a lot, but I mean, young adults is a big category. And um, I feel like not all that many young adults die of sudden cardiac death. So I can see that. Yeah. One of the other big groups leading to sudden cardiac death is the group called connective tissue diseases. So connective tissue is all of the the bigger groups you think of like cartilage and tendons and things like that, but it's really throughout your whole body. And in your heart, there's actually a lot of connective tissue. So these include things like your valves and then your aorta, all of your vasculature. There is muscle in there, but there's also a lot of connective tissue. And so if your connective tissue isn't working properly, it can lead to defects in the vasculature or in your valves. So the big one that I'm going to focus on is Marfan syndrome. There are some other ones like Ehlers-Danlos, but I'm going to focus on Marfan syndrome for this portion. And these are all genetic disorders. So they're all things that are inherited. So Marfan syndrome is an autosomal dominant mutation in something called fibrillin. And this mutation leads to abnormal, what's called extracellular matrix. So that's not the cells itself, but it's kind of the stuff that the cells are sitting in and kind of holds everything together. So in Marfan syndrome, clinically, that's where you have people that are really tall and thin with long arms, legs, fingers, toes, and they have really flexible joints. So why am I talking about it now? So in the heart, as I said, it can affect the valves. So your mitral and aortic valves, they are the ones that go between your right and left atrium and ventricle is your mitral valve. And then your aortic valve is between your left ventricle, which is the big one that pumps blood out to the body and then to your aorta. And since your connective tissue isn't as strong, the valves will usually stop blood flowing backwards. But because these valves aren't working properly, what can happen is that blood can flow backwards like it's not supposed to. It's called retrograde flow or prolapse. So the valves are prolapsing. And this makes it so you're not effectively pumping blood out to your body. So mitral valve prolapse is one of the big causes of death within the Marfan community. The other big thing that I'm going to throw in here, it's not technically your heart. It's technically the big vessel that goes out of your heart, but you can get a lot of aorta problems. So your aorta is 
kind of like a thick band of connective tissue, like this thick tube of connective tissue that goes from your heart up over and down and kind of right in front of your spine. And in this disease, you can have what's called cystic medial degeneration. And so what happens is between, in kind of the middle of this band of connective tissue, it starts to degenerate and it gets really weak. And then instead of blood flowing in the center, down what's called the lumen, it can dissect and start to go into the middle of your vessel. So instead of flowing in the middle, now you get this pocket of blood that's kind of slowly cutting the wall of the aorta in two. And this is a really big issue because it's a very strong vessel when it's this one thick band, but now when it's dissecting in half, it becomes really weak and you can start to hemorrhage and bleed. And when you're bleeding out of your aorta, which carries all of the blood to the rest of your body, (laughs) that's obviously going to very quickly kill you if you can't get under control. So it is definitely one of the leading causes of death within the Marfan community, along with heart issues, is aorta issues. This gene is present in about 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 10,000 people. So it's not that uncommon. Or this mutation, I should say, is present in 1 in 5 to 1 in 10,000 people. So it is something that you need to be aware of, but it does have a lot of these telltale syndromic appearances. So it is often identified pretty early and people get screening for these things a lot more frequently. So now I'm going to talk about cardiomyopathies, which are disorders in which the heart muscle is structurally abnormal and which other cardiovascular disease Uh, is absent or does not sufficiently explain the observed abnormality. So one of the most well-known forms of cardiomyopathy is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and it's the most common genetically determined primary heart muscle disease, and it affects 0.2 to 0.5% of the general population. And it's a very variable disease. It can present in many different ways. One of the most common ways it presents though is with sudden cardiac death. So somebody didn't know they had it at all, they die and then they find out at autopsy. So with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, macroscopically you see that the left ventricular wall is of increased thickness and it can be symmetrical, meaning the same thickness all the way around, or more frequently, it's asymmetrical. So one part of the wall will be thicker than the other. And then under the microscope, when you're examining the heart tissue, you can see myocyte hypertrophy. So that's enlargement of the heart muscle cells, uh, myocardial disarray. So that's disorganization of those cells and interstitial fibrosis. So an increase in the connective tissue between the cells, which is bad because it means that they're communicating less with each other, which ties into the usual cause of death in this entity, which Jordan will go into. So cause of death on this one, surprise, at the end is the same as all these others. (laughs) But essentially, as this wall gets thicker, the muscle becomes more stiff. And it actually is less that the heart can't pump out enough blood. It's more that it can't relax enough so you can get enough blood to fill it. So you actually have impaired filling of your left ventricle 
And so when it tries to pump the blood out to the rest of your body, you're not actually getting enough from each pump. So the final death in this, again, not too surprisingly, is some arrhythmia. So either ventricular fibrillation, where your ventricles just kind of randomly like shuddering, for lack of a better word, <laughs> or sustain what's called ventricular tachycardia. So it's just beating really, really, really fast. And when it beats that fast, it doesn't have enough time to fill with blood. So again, it's not pumping out enough blood to the rest of your body. Also importantly, because this muscle is thicker, it does need a little bit more blood and oxygen than it would otherwise. So it doesn't take as much for it to get to the point that you get this altered rhythm. Also, one thing that I thought about with this is people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are more likely to pass out because their heart regularly isn't pumping enough blood and they're not getting enough oxygen so they could pass out. I thought about the fact that this could lead to more injury, so you can have other causes of death associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy other than just this arrhythmia. Like if you're driving a car and you get a syncope and then you crash from that. So I kind of, I'm a little curious if, I didn't get a chance to look it up, but if there's other increased cause of death in this population because of the syncope. Um, oh, yeah, that would be interesting to look into. There are less than 100 deaths per year from this in the U.S., and among athletes, about one there is one death per about 220,000 athletes in the U.S. And one last fun fact I had on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Feline hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most common heart disease in domestic cats. What? So, <laughs> <laughs> it was on Wikipedia, and I had to share it. Oh, my um, God. So cats, one of the biggest things that they like biggest things that they check for is heart disease because it's not too uncommon. Mm -hmm. And this is apparently the most common of the heart diseases in cats. So, Huh. Yeah. That's cool. Animal corollary. Animals. So the second cardiomyopathy that I wanted to touch on is arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, which was previously known or is also known as arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia or arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And that's because the changes that you see are mostly in the right ventricle versus with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you mostly see changes in the left ventricle. So for Arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, it's actually the second most frequent cause of sudden death in the young, and it's the first most common cause of sudden death among athletes. Mm, uh, yep. And this is even though the prevalence is much less than hypertrophic. So hypertrophic, the prevalence in the general population, I said, was 0.2 to 0.5%. The prevalence of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy in the general population is only 0.01 to 0.05%. And the main feature of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is progressive loss of the heart muscle and uh, replacement with this fibrous and fatty tissue uh, within the right ventricle. And so this replacement with this fibro-fatty tissue results in a, a dilated ventricle. So the ventricle kind of balloons out and becomes very bad at doing its job of pumping blood to the lungs. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so this progressive dilation and replacement of the muscle can lead to sudden death. So the last big group that we're going to talk about are called ion channelopathies. So obviously your heart muscle has to, in a very coordinated way, pump your atria, which are the two little sacs on top that pump blood into your ventricles. 
and then the ventricles need to pump together to push that blood out into your lungs or to the rest of your body. And this all needs to happen in a very organized fashion. So there is there are two big electrical systems within the heart. The f Well, I'm going to group them into two big groups. One is kind of the organizer. So that comes from your SA node and AV node. And your SA node is what kind of starts your heartbeat. And so that's what starts the atria going. And then from there, you have a circuit that goes through the atria and goes into the AV node. And then the AV node can regulate the electrical activity that goes to your ventricles. So that's the kind of overarching thing. So SA node through atria into AV node through ventricles. And that's the normal overarching pattern. And then within the cardiomyocytes, the heart muscles themselves, they also need to have their own electrical pattern, which organizes them to actually pump the individual cardiac muscles, which will hopefully be done in an organized pattern. So you're pumping this entire muscle together. So when you have mutations to these channels that regulate this current, and of course this current is being driven by different ions. So that's calcium, that's potassium, and that's sodium. And the big ones in that, that at least I'm going to be talking about, Nicole, let me know if you're going to talk about other ones, are the sodium and the potassium channels. They're, they're really important to help start the muscle contractions and to bring yourself back to neutral so you can start these contractions again. So if you have a disrupted function of these ion channels or the proteins that regulate these ion channels, you can then lead to a lot of issues with the ability of your heart muscle to contract appropriately. So there's a lot of big groups of these, what are called ion channelopathies. And the biggest one that I saw anyway is this thing called long QT. So there are many different genes and many different mutations that are documented, but what do I mean by long QT? So you know that thing that you see on the heart monitor that the blip, blip, blip that you see on TV shows, there's different letters that we assign to different parts of the waves. And one of the part of the waves is called the QT interval. So that's right after your ventricles do their big pump is the, that's the Q. And then the T is this extra little blip that you have at the end. And that's all of, that's your ventricles repolarizing. So that's your ventricles getting their heart muscles back to zero. So in between those two is called the QT segment. Now there is a length that this should be appropriately. And if it's too long, which leads to a disease called long QT, that can cause a lot of issues. Mainly your heart can get out of its normal rhythm and go into this thing called torsade de poids, which is kind of looks like a big sine wave that's kind of rotating on its axis. So it gets really big and then really small and then really big and then really small. And when it's doing this, your heart isn't beating appropriately. And of course, as your heart's not beating appropriately, you're not getting enough blood everywhere and you can die from it. So long QT in the US leads to about 3000 deaths per year. This can occur, long QT can just be by itself. It can be a mutation that only affects that or can be part of a larger disorder. So a lot of the times there are really no signs or symptoms that you see before coming into this. Sometimes somebody could pass out 
and they can come back into normal rhythm or somebody might pass out. They realize that their heart isn't beating and then they can get defibrillated to get back into rhythm. It's a really important entity and that genetic testing can really help not only the patient, but the patient's family, since these are often inherited. And then treatment for these is oftentimes people will put an implantable defibrillator into the patients. So if they do go out of rhythm, the implanted defibrillator will shock them back into a normal rhythm. So enough, the second most common one is Brugada. And this is a, oh, I should, as we're doing this, long QT is usually a mutation to the a potassium channel. And Brugada is usually a mutation to a sodium channel called the SCN5A gene versus long QT. There's a lot of genes that are associated with it. Both of these diseases are can be diagnosed on EKG. Long QT, obviously you look for that interval, that QT interval I talked about. Brugada, you look for ST elevation, which is ST is another segment um, in the precordial leads or a right bundle branch block, which I will not get into detail on because it's not as important. Brugada also usually doesn't have any signs or symptoms, but you can have episodes of passing out. Brugada also, interestingly, could be triggered by fever, which is something that I did not see in long QT. Oh. Yeah. Brugada also is often treated with an implantable defibrillator. Somewhere between 1 and 30 in 10,000 people have Brugada, but not all of these are symptomatic. Wait, what was that? 1 in? Between 1 and 30 in 10,000 people. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it is confusing. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I was like, one in 30? That's ridiculous. No, between one and one to 30 out of 10,000 people. But that's still a decent amount of people because there's 200 million people in the US. So it's still a decent amount of people that have Brugada. True, but a little bit more reasonable. Yes, than than one in 30. One in 30. Two other ones that I'm not going to go into detail on are catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Say which that I know sounds, Yeah, exactly. Or short QT. So we said long QT was an issue where your heart takes too long to repolarize. Short QT is when your heart doesn't take long enough to repolarize. And there could be different issues there. That QT segment is such a Goldilocks Seriously. diva. Jeez. Worst. And then two other... They're not technically ion channelopathies, but they are inherited arrhythmia syndromes that I wanted to talk about are WPW and AFib. I also want to talk about these because I have two good friends that one has WPW and the other one has AFib. And Collect I think them that all? they're, yeah, exactly. And I think they're one really interesting and two really important for people to know about. So WPW is called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, the three dudes that discovered it or delineated it. So as I said, normally your SA node will send a signal for your atria to contract, and then your AV node will take that signal and kind of slow it down a little bit and then propagate that signal to your ventricles. The most important thing that I said there was your AV node slows down the number of beats per minute that get sent into your ventricles because your atria can actually beat pretty quickly, but your ventricle is not really, cannot functionally beat that fast. So the AV node is really important for slowing down your heart rate. 
So what happens in WPW is that there's this alternative pathway. It's called an accessory pathway that communicates between the atria and the ventricles directly. So it's called the bundle of Kent. And instead of going through your SA node, it will propagate somewhere else in your ventricles. And then instead of being this organized beat from your SA node, will start somewhere in your ventricle, which will propagate to the rest of your ventricles, but it'll do it way too fast. So what happens is you have these abnormal heart rhythms, including atrial fibrillation, which are when the tiny, the smaller sacs on top just kind of randomly fibrillate, or ventricular fibrillation, which is when the larger pumping bits start to randomly fibrillate and you're not getting a good organized heartbeat out to the rest of your body. This is present in about 0.1 to 0.3% of the population. And this is often diagnosed on an EKG after an event. So after somebody, you can feel it when your heart is beating really fast and out of whack. So people might feel it, they feel lightheaded, dizzy, or they might pass out and then be brought into the emergency room. And on an EKG there, they see some distinct features, which include this delta wave, which is kind of like this smooth uptick at the beginning of your main part of your heartbeat that isn't normal. The main part of your heartbeat called the QRS wave could be widened, or there's some other things as well that I'm not going to go into detail on. So there is a very distinct thing that you see on EKG that you can find this. Treatment for this is either medication to control the rate or the rhythm or you can actually ablate it. And what ablating means is, as I said, there's this alternate pathway called the bundle of Kent. You can actually go in and kind of burn that part of the heart muscle that has this electrical pathway and cut it off. So you're stopping this alternate, this accessory pathway. So your electrical activation of the heart can only go the way that it's supposed to. And the second one I wanted to talk about was atrial fibrillation. Um, so we talked, I talked about how atrial fibrillation is when the smaller sacs on top of the heart randomly beat in a way that isn't organized. This is an entity that affects actually two to 3% of the population overall. And atrial fibrillation can be genetically acquired. It also can be something that happens over time with, you know, being alive and being in the world. So like I said, it can be inherited. They've found at least 15 mutations in potassium channels and six mutations in sodium channels, as well as other things that are inherited causes of atrial fibrillation. But there's also a lot of things like the sedentary lifestyle, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, smoking. Those things can also lead to acquired atrial fibrillation. Like we said, this episode is more focused on inherited things, things that the heart can do to you with you having no say in it. So there is a small portion of these cases that are inherited. In terms of atrial fibrillation in general, it counts for about a third of hospital admissions for cardiac disturbances overall. It also mm -hmm. accounts for about 20 to 30% of ischemic strokes that happen. About 10% of people with TIAs, which are transient ischemic attacks, or kind of what people think of as small strokes, they are actually found to have atrial fibrillation in the end. So how do you treat atrial fibrillation? It is actually pretty similar to WPW, except there's more focus 
from what I've seen on rate and rhythm control than ablation. So rate control means you're taking a medication to slow down your heart rate and rhythm control means you take a medication that helps make sure your heart doesn't go into an abnormal rhythm. Like I said, you can, if there is a single pathway that is causing the atrial fibrillation, you can ablate it, but oftentimes there are multiple pathways, so it's hard to just ablate it because there isn't just one. So if you're having this atrial fibrillation, you can do something called cardiovert the person back to normal. So that's when you think of somebody being shocked back into normal rhythm, that's called cardioversion. And most of the time when you think of that, it's somebody that is dead, right? They are not conscious. They are a person lying down on a bed with the big paddles that come in and shock. Um, you can actually do this to people that are alive and talking to you as well. The doses are obviously slightly different, but if you're atrial fibrillating like this, one of the most effective ways to bring you back into normal rhythm is to give you a light shock. Um, I do not, I am not as good at this as an emergency medicine doc, so I'm sure if one of them listens, they would come back at me and tell me that I'm saying it all wrong. But it's important to know that you can give a person a shock if they're in AFib that brings them back into normal, what's called sinus rhythm, and then they can go about their seemingly normal day. Importantly, this has to happen within 48 hours of this starting because if your atria are just randomly fibrillating, you can start to form some small blood clots. And if you don't bring them back into normal rhythm within 48 hours, you worry that these blood clots could be big enough to cause a stroke or a heart attack. So if you start to fibrillate, you want to get cardioverted and brought back into normal sinus rhythm quickly. Um, other ways that you can bring them back into normal rhythm is you can push some drugs and those drugs can help bring the heartbeat back into its normal rhythm. Um, there's a lot of various things to treat live people. We obviously will not be seeing the live people. We will be seeing them after the worst has happened. So Yeah. So before we get to our stories, we wanted to take the opportunity to focus a little bit more on what forensic pathologists role is in sudden cardiac death. We've talked a lot about the things that can be done to help keep people alive, but once the worst has happened, where do we come in? So sudden death is often the first clinical manifestation of some sort of underlying disease in somebody who was previously asymptomatic and apparently healthy. So in this setting, autopsy represents the first and possibly only opportunity to establish and register an accurate cause of death. And as we've discussed in other episodes, there's been a substantial worldwide decrease in autopsy rates, which as a result, important information may not reach health registries and other databases that can help determine whether these are actually as big of a problem as they seem. So the Association for European Cardiovascular Pathology came up with a which is the minimum standard required in routine autopsy practice for adequate assessment of sudden cardiac disease in the general population. The first step of any autopsy is, well, after identification of the correct body, is the external examination. Um, so for sudden cardiac death, it's very important on the external exam to look for any signs of dysmorphic features 
Jordan talked a bunch about Marfan syndrome, which has some characteristic physical features such as a long face, uh, long arms. So you can look for things like that on autopsy. And this is especially relevant with congenital heart disease, because also, as I mentioned, a lot of those are associated with different genetic syndromes like trisomy 21, which also has some characteristic physical features. And then during the autopsy itself, one of the most important things you can do is exclude non-cardiac causes of natural sudden death because the heart is not the only thing that can kill you suddenly. You can also have like an acute brain bleed, which can kill you, or an acute asthma attack, which can kill you. So ruling out those Or PE, very important, pulmonary embolus. Uh, and then as we talked about, there are a bunch of cardiovascular diseases that can cause sudden cardiac death. So you want to look structurally, check the anatomy of the vessels, um, see if everything is put together the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> and the way in which you examine the heart can depend on um, the, what you suspect might be the cause of death. So in one of our earlier episodes, we talked about the different autopsy methods. So um, if something like congenital heart disease is suspected, then you might want to do like the GON method, which is where you take out different systems together so you can examine the ways in which they connect and see if those connections are normal. Um, and Jordan's going to go into exactly how to do a very detailed heart autopsy, essentially, a little bit later. You also want to do appropriate ancillary studies or other testing. So toxicology is a big one. You want to make sure that the person didn't die from some um, drug overdose. Uh, microbiology. So if you suspect something like myocarditis, which we focused on autoimmune, but infection can also cause myocarditis. So you want to be able to rule that out. And then most importantly in sudden cardiac death is genetic testing. Um, so you want to obtain a frozen heart tissue and blood. Uh, and those can be sent to places where they can run genetic screening. And then hopefully if you have a well set up system, then genetic counselors will also be available to talk to the family about the findings and what their risks might be and whether or not they potentially should start medication to prevent um, suffering a sudden cardiac death themselves. So a lot of what I'm going to go through on this is stuff that Nicole's already said. So there will be a little bit of repetition. But kind of one of the first things you want to do with the heart itself is to get an appropriate weight. So there are a lot of different studies that have looked at a normal weight for a heart. And it changes with your age, with your height, with a lot of different factors. But I pulled two numbers from a website that one of our attendings developed called autopsypathology.net. And for a, I did 50 year olds of the average height woman and man. So an average height man, which is a 5'10 man in the U.S. at 50 years old, their heart weighs 334 grams on average. And then for a 50 year old woman, which the average height in the U.S. is 5'3", that's 263 grams. So they're about 70 grams apart. And they about average 300 grams. So the average human 
will have a heart of about 300 grams. And what is 300 grams? Because nobody really ever has something that's that size. And one of the interest, <laughs> it's about, it's 0.66 pounds. So it's a little over a half a pound or 12 AA batteries is about the same amount. 12 so, AA batteries. 12 AA batteries. That's which an appropriate really <laughs> metaphor. That's an appropriate metaphor given that electricity runs through it and helps it beat. Right. That's obviously what I was going for when I, right. when I did that. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're looking at the heart, the first big chunk of this is all macroscopic. So what are we seeing to the physical eye? The first thing, as Nicole alluded to, is what do we see in the body? So look at the pericardium, which is the sac outside of the heart. And you look at the pericardium versus the heart itself. Is the heart kind of loosely floating and a little bit of fluid in the pericardium, which is normal? Or is there a lot of blood or fluid in that pericardium, which can tell us about other causes of death. Is it really adhesed? So is it like really attached to the pericardium? And that could show signs of infection or inflammation. Next thing you're going to do once you take the heart out is you look on the outside of the heart itself for some of those same th things. So do you see adhesions? Do you see signs of infection? Do you see any trauma? So obviously this covers more than just innate heart issues. So do you see, you know, a giant wound going through the heart because they just got stabbed or something. So, you know, we're looking for everything on this. Next thing you're going to look at overall is the anatomy of those big vessels. So the arteries and the veins. So are they coming out of the appropriate part of the heart? If they aren't, maybe you have some, you know, anomaly of the great vessels and that could answer your question right there. Next step. And again, there are, as Nicole mentioned, you have the different methods to do it either in the body or out of the body. There's also different ways to approach doing an autopsy of a heart. I'm going to do the one that I was taught, but everybody does it a little bit different. One of the next steps that we take is looking at all the vessels that are sitting on the outside of your heart. So those are your coronary arteries and seeing if they're patent. So are they big, wide and open and getting enough blood to the heart muscle itself? Here you can also see if that vessel is coursing on top of the muscle or going through the muscle. As we said, that's called a myocardial bridge and that can lead to sudden death. You can see if those coronary arteries are arising from where they're supposed to be or if they're wrapping around something in a way that might cause an issue in blood not to get to the heart muscle itself. After you look for those vessel locations and patency, you the next step that I was always taught is to start from the apex of the heart, which is actually, the apex is actually closer to the toes. So the pointy part of the heart, for lack of a better term, is the apex. <laughs> and you take very thin sections from the apex up towards the base, which the base of the heart is actually more closer to the head because <laughs> anatomists decided to make this very difficult a long time ago. So you go from the apex to the base, which is the bottom to the top. <laughs> <laughs> and you keep making these very thin sections until you get through all but say an inch of the ventricles that are left. And in each of these slices, you then look at the heart muscle itself and you're looking for any discolorations or any pockets of tissue that look different. So if it doesn't look like normal deep red color heart muscle, 
you'll stop and be like, well, maybe that's an infarct, or maybe there's some fibrosis laid down, or maybe there's fatty replacement. And you can start to identify some of the changes in the heart muscle itself at that point. You're also still looking at those coronary vessels because you're cutting through everything. So you're cutting through those as well. And you might be able to see if those are more or less open at that point. And you can also look at the thickness of the ventricle walls too and kind of compare them. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the this is kind of where things deviate a lot amongst people is I was taught to cut along the quote unquote lines of flow. You start in the right atrium where the blood first comes in and you cut from the right atrium into the right ventricle. And then you kind of continue along the flow of blood, cutting down from the atria into the ventricles and then on the outflow path and then same thing on the left side. And once you cut open the heart and you can kind of lay it out, the next thing that you'll look at are the valves. And on the valves, you're looking for, do we have the right number of leaflets? Because all of these valves have a set number of normal leaflets. And if you have an abnormal number, that can indicate different diseases. You also look to see if they have the right consistency. Like they're supposed to be pretty pliable. And if they're very stiff from either calcifications or infection, you can identify that. You can also look at if they're too floppy. So maybe from something like Marfan's, you'll have some degeneration and you'll get that regurgitation of those vessels, those um, valves and be like, all right, well, this is consistent with a Marfan syndrome if they're too flexible. And of course, as you're doing this, you're going to look for anything else that's abnormal. So are you seeing holes between the right and the left ventricle or the right and the left atria? There can definitely be defects in those bigger parts of the heart muscle itself that can lead to different blood flow patterns that aren't ideal. Once you've done this, there are a handful of histologic sections that you would normally take. Nicole has referred to some of these already. Um, If you have any vessels that are really stenose, so the lumens aren't as open as they should be, you can submit those to look under the microscope. If you have any infarcts, so you're seeing a discoloration to the heart muscle, you can submit those for histology. And not only can you see if there's any damage to the muscle, but you can also sometimes date these infarcts. So this is only about two days old because I'm seeing these specific kinds of of white blood cells. Or this has been around for a very long time because there are no more dead cardiac myocytes left. All I'm seeing is like fibrosis laid down. Or you can see inflammation like myocarditis. Um, Another thing that you can actually, there's a certain way that you can cut the heart so you can identify those cardiac conduction centers. So the SA node and the AV node, there are certain steps that you take in order to find those, but you can then look at the cardiac conduction centers under the microscope to identify some defects there. Um, And the last thing I wanted to say about this, um, as Nicole mentioned, is you need to try to save, if you're worried about a sudden cardiac death, that might not be from a structural issue. So you're worried about an ion channel opathy or something like that. You can do genetic testing. Again, these ion channel opathies don't necessarily need to be on the heart muscle itself, but it's better to use a fresh tissue specimen than it is to use something. So when we take tissue for histology, we do something called fixation with formalin and then we embed it in paraffin. 
So you can use that tissue for genetic testing, but it's not as good. The DNA isn't as good as fresh tissue. So if you're going to do genetic testing, you really should do this with fresh tissue. So in terms of fresh tissue, one of the really important things to do this on often is a SIDS case. So SIDS is sudden infant death syndrome. So that's when a baby gets put to bed in their crib and doesn't wake up the next day. And one of the things that they found can be mutated in these is cardiac ion channels. So there was a Dutch study that found out of 102 cases, 40 of them were found to have variants in eight different cardiac arrhythmia genes. Whoa. So for a lot of SIDS cases, they might not necessarily be tested, but a lot of these might be tied to a cardiac issue. Mm. Um, and of course, there's a lot more than just cardiac things that can be found in genetic testing, but somebody that dies suddenly it's really important to keep in mind that the genetic testing could lead you back to a heart issue, even if the heart is completely normal on macroscopic and microscopic examination. So on to stories. We Mine is going back to my birth year, <laughs> 1990, uh, but a little bit before I was actually born. So on March 4th, 1990, the Loyola Marymount basketball team was competing in the West Coast Conference semifinal against University of Portland for the chance to earn a spot in the NCAA tournament. Guard Terry Lowry lobbed a pass toward the basket and Hank Gathers, the team's power forward, who as a junior became only the second player in the history of men's division one college basketball to lead the nation in scoring and rebounding, was there to throw it down for a two-handed dunk. So after this spectacular feat, Gathers stopped suddenly as he made his way back up court. And then he slumped over. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice sound effects. Everybody in the arena knew about Gathers' previous heart troubles, so they instantly feared the worst. Gathers tried to get up once and sank back down, never to try again. He was pronounced dead within two hours at the young age of 23. Too young. Too young indeed. So Gathers went down with 13 minutes and 34 seconds left in the first half of the tournament. And the game was canceled and LMU, his team, was named the, the champion and earned a trip to the NCAA tournament. So apparently Gathers had collapsed previously on December 9th in a game against the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he missed two games after that, um, but during some extensive testing, he was later cleared to play. And he was described um, a drug called propranolol, but he reportedly had cut down his dose because it left him feeling sluggish while exercising, which is clearly something a peak athlete does not want. Yeah, and that's definitely a known side effect um, of propranolol. So the drug belongs to a class um, called beta blockers, and they're often prescribed for things like cardiomyopathy, and sluggishness is a well-known side effect um, of beta blockers. So at autopsy, um, Gathers was found to have died of a cardiomyopathy, and they didn't find anything on toxicology. So his final cause of death was ruled arrhythmia due to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Okay. So on Saturday, March 1st of this year, 
members of the 1989-1990 LMU team um, uh, gathered in front of a of the arena to unveil a, a statue of Gathers for the 30th anniversary of his death. Um, nice. So that's how I found this story. I was looking up, like I looked up heart stories in the news and this popped <laughs> up because okay. um, it was the 30th anniversary of his death. Oh, um, nice. But, but anyway, um, he was, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm almost 30. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so old. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I just realized that he, I mean, he's been dead longer than he was alive, oh, which happens so to everybody eventually, but it's a really <laughs> sad one. <laughs> you like that long, yeah. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. Um, so I thought this was a little, I thought this was interesting because in those articles that I saw, they went into a little bit of background about um, sudden death in athletes in the United States. So one of the articles I was reading said that a heart exam is not required for children to play sports in school at any level in the U.S. Um, all that's generally required is a routine physical from a doctor and a look at the family history. And the American Heart Association currently does not endorse widespread heart screening in athletes. Um, yeah, I read it, a lot of this when I was doing the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy research. Yeah, well, and I thought it was m- most interesting because this is how it is in the U.S., but like in Italy, all athletes between the ages of 12 and 35 are required to have an EKG before they're cleared for sports. Um, and Israel and Japan also have similar systems. So worldwide, well, I think it's, it's not the standard. It's not, but also I remember seeing a lot of stats on like the number of cases that it actually picks up and the number of cases that are maybe that it picks up that then incur a lot of other healthcare costs to rule it out are actually pretty high. And so that's why it ended up deciding to go with, we're not going to make this required screening because you end up with these people that go down this whole pathway of stuff to prove that they're just fine. And the amount of people that end up, especially in the U.S., which is a huge country yeah. overall, leading to these bad effects. And like this guy, they knew he had this disease, right? So this didn't really matter. They were aware that he had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and he continued to play with it. So the screen wouldn't have helped him. True. Yes. No, that's definitely true. I guess. I don't remember why exactly it came up in the articles since they already knew for gathers that he had this disease, but I did think it was an interesting thing. And yeah, the main argument that you mentioned was the American Heart Association says that the U.S. population is just too big and the healthcare system too overburdened for similar systems as Italy, Israel, and Japan to work here. Um, but, but when if we had centralized healthcare. True. Yeah. Wow. Getting all radical on me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree. Um, but one thing <laughs> that was interesting about the Italy program is that research conducted after it was implemented showed that the incidence of sudden cardiovascular death in young Italian athletes declined um, as much as 90%. I'm also wondering how much of that is because they started screening, but also I think it's now more of a thing to have a defib on site for a lot of these um, oh. bigger events. And so maybe some of the deaths went down because they have a defib available, you know? Yeah. It'd be interesting to see when the protocol was implemented and whether or not defibrillator devices had been available before that. The last thing I wanted to say was despite the current practice of just having the 
routine physical exam and family history as screening for school athletes. About 90% of professional athletes are tested for heart disease regularly. And the NBA actually mandates that all players and potential players um, receive an extensive um, barrage of tests, including EKG. And many college athletic programs also have similar systems of their own. So not to say that there is no screening at all going on in the U.S., just there's no national slash federally mandated program. And it's mostly at the college and professional level where the uh, organizations themselves are bearing the brunt of the cost. Like we said, <laughs> healthcare is not the uh, best organized thing in the U.S. And unless things are implemented at a systemic level, they are often not economically feasible. And yep. so a lot of things that probably should be done aren't being done because the way that things are organized, it doesn't really make sense economically. Uh, so my story is, I'm going to briefly talk about a story that I found in the news and kind of go into a story that I experienced in medical school. So two uh, twins, Carter and John Cox. So Carter was is a little girl, and when she was still in the hospital before they discharged her, um, her heart rate dropped precipitously. So the doctors, so her heart rate dropped very quickly, and the doctors gave her an EKG. So looking at the EKG, they saw that she had this very long QT interval, which, as we said, is that period between when your main heartbeat ends and your heart repolarizes. And as we've said, long QT syndrome is associated with sudden death because your heart can go into this really bad arrhythmia, not beat properly, and you can die. So again, these were fraternal twins. Obviously, there's a boy and a girl, so they're not identical. So they also did an EKG on Carter's brother, John. And John was also found to have the same long QT syndrome. So... The doctors told them, take them home and love them best you can and do everything you can to keep them alive. So for 10 days, they were kept in the hospital before they were discharged and they were sent home. And there is no, luckily there is no sad part to this tale, but. Hey, only sad stories here. We have this a tale. Don't worry. We haven't gotten into my tale yet. And the parents apparently for like the first couple weeks didn't do anything except for, you know, stare at the babies and make sure that they were still breathing throughout the night. There's a little side note in this article that they were watching TV one evening and the mom dropped the remote. And the first thing they did was look at their kids and freak out because anytime that they're startled, it can drop them into a bad rhythm oh, wow. in which they would then need to get, defibrillated to get out of so they sent these kids home with a defibrillator wow they eventually put them on a beta blocker to help which is one of the medications that you can give to shorten that qt interval and supplement them with potassium to help maintain a more normal heart rhythm and you know the kids up to the point that this article came out are okay medically fragile but you know it's one of those things that the parents are just essentially constantly freaking out about and making sure that their kids are okay or not. And the reason that um, I wanted to talk about this is because in medical school, one of the things that they had us do was talk with a family who is dealing with some kind of med 
genetic medical disorder. And I was connected up with a family that had a known diagnosis of long QT syndrome. And the way that this family found out about having long QT syndrome is they had one of their children. Unfortunately, they woke up one morning and their child wasn't alive. And they called the hospital or they called the ambulance. The ambulance came. Baby was dead. I think they did try to revive the the infant, but they weren't able to bring him to the hospital. And they ended up getting... I think they ended up getting an autopsy and finding at autopsy that this patient had this genetic disease. So then they went and they tested the rest of the family and this infant's siblings. And they found that several of the siblings, because this was a relatively big family, also had long QT. So I talked with the mom for a while about what she dealt with and what she went through. And essentially, I think she had three other children, two of which had it and one didn't. And when I spoke with her, the youngest was, I can't remember exactly, but I think the youngest was about three. And then the oldest that was living with it was about seven. And I went and saw them at a checkup appointment for the seven-year-old's defibrillator. So once these kids, so once the, when they're really little, the only thing that they can really do for them is to give them some medication as this other child had beta blockers, potassium supplements to try to keep them into a, as normal rhythm as possible. And once you get old enough to be able to do okay through an operation like this, they can put an implantable defibrillator in. And when you have an implantable defibrillator, you need to go to the doctor relatively frequently to make sure that it's working properly. They can read from the defibrillator. They can put like essentially a magnet over it and read some of the rhythms that have been going on recently. And they could test it and make sure that it's you know doing what it needs to do and providing the, and can provide the appropriate current if it needs to. And then of course, as these kids get older, the heart is growing. So they are going to need to get these defibrillators replaced slowly over time as the hearts get bigger to the point when I believe eventually they'll be able to get the final adult one. But of course, as technology improves, things may change in these kids' lifetimes. So when I was talking to the mom, she had had one child who had died, one child that was being controlled on medication, and one child that had a defibrillator who was you know actively getting checked when I talked to her. So it was one of the cases where it was both heartbreaking that they had, that they lost this child, but at the same time that led to them identifying this disease and this thing or to identifying this condition that two of the deceased siblings had, and hopefully they're able to, you know, treat the siblings appropriately so they do not die from this in the future and can appropriately treat them. We rarely think of autopsy as something that can save somebody else. But I think that this is one of the really important ways that our job helps not necessarily the public health at large, but the family surrounding the deceased. And I think it's really important. Yeah. Well, that was a good story. Thank you. Sorry, did I miss this? Did the parents also have any sort of cardiac abnormalities or just so like children? When I was... From what I remember, again, this was in medical school, so this was a while ago. 
one of the parents had to have had it and I can't remember if they which one they tested. I believe one of them had it, but I can't remember distinctly. That was but if three of the kids had it, one of the parents had to have had it. So So on that note of uh us being able to hopefully help many families in the future. So she means. So she means. Um, so if you liked this and any of our other episodes, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's how we get boosted up on the various podcast platform charts and other people hear about us. You can also visit our website at deadmendotailpodcast.com where we link to all of our sources in our episode guide. On Twitter, we're at deadmendo. On Insta, we're at The Dead Tale Tales. And our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And as always, if you want to send us an email with feedback, corrections, other things you would like us to cover, you can either email us through the website or directly to thedeadtelltales at gmail.com. And our opening theme music is Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevear, who you can find on SoundCloud. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Yep. Uh, And congrats to us for finishing our first remote podcast. (laughs) Yay. Thanks, guys. Air five. Or, I mean, elbow bump. (laughs) Elbow bump.